Well, if you have a Bible, you can go to Revelation 19. That's the main place we're hanging out tonight. We will also spend time in the end of chapter 18 where we left off the last time we were in Revelation together. And as you're turning there, I'll tell you that tonight it's kind of like when I was a kid. I loved Sesame Street when I was a kid. Couldn't get any of my kids into Sesame Street really with any level of success, which was disappointing. They rejected Sesame Street. They rejected the Muppets. They wanted nothing to do with the whole thing. They thought it was old and boring. That's what they thought. <laughs> so uh, you can never get them into it. But when I was a kid and I would watch Sesame Street, there was always a word of the day, right? And our word of the day tonight is hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's a biblical word. And yet it is a word that is used all over the Western world by people that are Christian and non-Christian alike. If you just type in hallelujah on your phone, and the, you know, if you're texting and has the little red magnifying glass, you can tap that and you can look for a quick gift to throw into a, uh, the, your, your text. If, if everything I just said to you was basically Mandarin, you can just move on. Don't worry about it, all right? So, but you just scroll through. I mean, oh, look at all the hallelujah gifts. It's still going. More and more and more. These are all hallelujah gifts that are just there waiting to be used. And... People use this word over the, the most silly things, right? Like you, you're out to eat, you're waiting for your table, the buzzer goes off and somebody's like, hey, the table's ready. And somebody else goes, hallelujah, right? Because they're ready to eat. Or this Sunday, I'm going to be going to see the Washington Commanders uh, play in person and uh, looking forward to being able to do that, make that trip once a year with uh, my best friend, Kenny Van Horn. And if they were to win on a last second field goal, I can guarantee you somebody in that 75,000 people is going to go, hallelujah, right? And it's also uh, the title of a song that is very popular, one of the most covered songs of all time, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. It's been recorded by over 300 artists since it was released in 1991. And so Hallelujah is a word used all over the world by people that are Christians, by people that are pagans, everybody in between. But at the end of the day, Hallelujah is a word that belongs to heaven. It is one of God's words. And it literally means praise the Lord. It is used in the Psalter, in the Hallel Psalms, and most famously in the Hallelujah Psalms of 146 through 150. We just read 150 a moment ago. The refrain of praise the Lord sounds out again and again and again in these Psalms. This Hebrew word hallelujah translates to praise the Lord, it is transliterated and used in the New Testament four different times. And all four are in this passage that we're looking at tonight. These hallelujahs are praises that are launched toward the throne of God by the people of God and the heavenly host. As Babylon is destroyed and is reduced to smoldering ashes on the horizon, praises are going up to the Lord. As the evil network of humanity is reduced to rubble, the saints and the angels and the elders, they all raise their voices in exaltation. As the harlot is laid to rest in the sea, the bride is prepared for her wedding day. And so tonight, we pick it up here in the midst of the sixth cycle of the seven cycles in Revelation. In the sixth cycle, we have seen Babylon judged. We have seen her funeral. She has been mourned by her lovers. 
Tonight we see the last glimpse of the great prostitute sinking down into the sea and we hear of her foil, the bride of the Lamb. I'll read the text and we will see four hallelujahs in this text. Four causes for praise. Number one, praise the Lord for he is a redeeming judge. Number two, praise the Lord for he has overcome the world. Number three, praise the Lord, for he is the Savior of all who fear and serve him. And then lastly, the last hallelujah, praise the Lord, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. So let me read the text, and then we will start getting into these hallelujahs. Revelation 18, starting in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's what we all just sang together. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Obviously, Lord, I am an unworthy instrument. You are a worthy God. And I pray that you would use me and speak through me, and that I would be out of the way, and that you would be front and center. Father, we are unworthy listeners, and it's only by your grace that we would understand the spiritual things, that we would understand the kingdom. And so, Lord, we praise you for the grace to understand. We praise you for spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. We praise you for a heart of flesh that can know you, 
that can respond to you, that can be in relationship with you. And we ask you, Father, for our faith to grow through the passage tonight, for our love for you to grow through the passage tonight, for our anticipation of heaven to grow through the passage tonight, and also, Lord, a hatred of sin and a hatred of the world to grow through this passage tonight and our hearing of it and our understanding of it, Lord. So while we may be unworthy listeners, Lord, you are worthy. And we know that you love us. And we know that you love to speak to us. And you love to pick us up out of the mire and you love to set our feet upon the rock. And so do it again tonight through the preaching of the word, through the hearing of the word. And Lord, we come to you asking for these things in Jesus' holy and precious and worthy name. Amen. Let's start by looking at this first hallelujah that comes in chapter 19, verse 1. John hears what seems to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. He's going to hear them again in verse 3. I think he hears them again in verse 6. Some disagree and think that there's someone else speaking in verse 6. But definitely two of the four hallelujahs tonight are coming from this multitude and possibly three. Who is this multitude? Have we seen this multitude before? Well, certainly we have seen them before. It's the church triumphant. They were the church militant on earth, and they are the church triumphant. The 144,000 representing the people of God. Twelve is God's perfect number that he uses to describe his complete people. And so here we have the 144,000. Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. One of the elders addresses John and tells him the identity of this multitude. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But when we saw them again in chapter 14, they were on Mount Zion, the church triumphant. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And now in Revelation 19, this multitude is roaring with jubilation over the defeat of the world the defeat of Babylon they are crying out hallelujah and the praise that they have is aimed at both God's redemption of his people and his justice in the world and these two things go hand in hand you see them say salvation and glory and power belong to our God and that speaks to God's redeeming nature He exercises his power for the sake of his glory and the salvation of his people. He has redeemed them from their sins so they would not be swept away in judgment with the wicked. And yet, on the other hand, we know that the great Redeemer is a judge because he has judged Babylon. He has judged Babylon for corrupting his creation with immorality and for spilling the blood of the prophets and the martyrs. And so, number one, praise the Lord for he is a redeeming judge. And by the way, there's nowhere that we see that God is a redeeming judge more than the cross of Jesus Christ, right? 
Because there at the cross, He is redeeming His people. But there at the cross, Christ is being judged for the sins of His people. And so we look at the cross and we are sure that He is a redeeming judge. But we also see that He is a redeeming judge here in verses 1 and 2. And we see it at the end of chapter 18. To understand the justice that has been poured out by God, we've got to go back and look at the very end of the previous chapter. You've got the shipmasters. You've got the seafaring men. The ones who made their money off of Babylon. They're calling on heaven. Filled with the saints. Filled with the prophets. Filled with the apostles. And they are saying rejoice. Even they recognize that God has won. And then in verse 21, you have this mighty angel who takes up a stone like a great millstone and throws it into the sea. And says Babylon is going to disappear in judgment just as this millstone disappears beneath the waters. And like so many of the pictures that we get in the book of Revelation, we got to go back into the Old Testament to understand what's going on here. Jeremiah 51, verses 63 and 64. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. That took place in part in the days of the literal Babylonian Empire when God judged them and God gave the power that they had over to the Persians. But what happened in part in the days of physical Babylon is happening now in full because all of the empires, the entire evil network of humanity, it's all going to sink and it will rise no more. We can read what that will be like in verses 21 through 24. As Babylon is thrown down with violence, thrown down in God's judgment, it will be found no more. Those words, no more, are important. They're repeated six different times here in these verses. Babylon will be no more, verse 21. Music will be no more, in verse 20. Craftsmen will be no more, in verse 22. The mill will be no more, in verse 22. No more music. No more craftsmen, no more mill. All the vain, man-centered culture that humanity has come up with, it's going to be no more. All the human craftsmanship, all the industry, it's all going to be gone for good. Every song that celebrates the wickedness of humanity. Have you ever just been driving down the road with your windows open and you hear somebody listening to some song that is so foul that you have to roll the windows up? You're like, I don't want my kid to hear that. Right? I don't want Cardi B flowing into my windows from whoever is sitting next to me. All of that's going to be gone, never to be heard from again. Every song that is blasphemous, every song that is wicked, every song that celebrates evil, it's all going to be deleted from the record, gone, bottom of the sea, judged by God, forgotten. All these buildings and things made for the glory of wicked man will never be seen again. Gone. But that's not all. It gets worse. There will be no more light for the wicked. See that in verse 23. See, in God's common grace right now, He is giving light to all people. You look around and there are people that are operating in absolute wickedness, operating in pride, operating in violence, and yet they have the light 
to live and to move and to breathe. They have the light to use intelligence. And they use that intelligence to build, to create, to do spatial reasoning, to make decisions that protect their lives. He gives them the actual physical light of the sun. He gives them, uh, the, sun, the sun shines on the just and the unjust, right? But this common grace, it will end. And common judgment will take the place for all that oppose him. And yet it gets worse. Not only will there be no more culture, no more craftsmanship, no more industry, no more common grace, no more light. There will be no more love for the wicked. You see that in verse 23. Right now God allows people who despise him in their hearts to experience little tastes, little aspects of love in the world. After all, Christians aren't the only ones getting married, right? That's going to end. Those who have cast their lot with Babylon will never, ever know love again. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will disappear and will be heard no more. The reason that God's judgment is poured out in this way is because the nations, from the merchants to the greatest rulers, they were deceived by the evil magic, the sorcery of Babylon. They fell for her tricks. The nations drank from her cup of sexual immorality. Remember chapter 18, verse 3. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. The people of the earth, from the greatest to the smallest who oppose the Lord, have bought the lie that Babylon, with all of her harlot clothes and her makeup and her jewelry, could offer them more than God could. They believe the world can afford them more than God can afford them. So they've rejected the love of God. They've been deceived into loving the great prostitute. They've rejected God and they have gone with the world. And as if this spiritual adultery is not bad enough, they murdered the prophets and the martyrs. Every prophet, every martyr slain on the earth was slain by Babylon. Slain by those who were in bed with Babylon. We've seen the injustice committed against God's people throughout the book of Revelation. Going back to Revelation 6 and the opening of the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And he cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That cry of the martyrs has been answered in the fall of Babylon. We saw Babylon staggering around drunk on the blood of the saints in Revelation 17, 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And then listen to what John says. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. You know why John marveled? It was because she's so brash. See, John knows Jesus. He's seen Jesus. He knows the power of Jesus. Think about it. He, he knew him on earth, right? He, he saw God in the flesh do his work on the earth. And he also knows him now through the visions of revelation, the ascended glorious Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He knows his power. He knows justice will eventually come for the harlot. And so he is marveling at how she's so brash to be staggering around drunk on the blood of the martyrs. 
And remember, she cried out, I'm never going to be a widow. I'll never, I'll never be a widow. My citizens, my children, they'll never be taken from me. But John knows better. He knows the justice of God will come. And so he marvels at how brash he is. And now avenging justice has come for the people of God. That is evident in chapter 19, verse 2. The prostitute has been judged. The blood of the servants of God have been avenged. So from the blood of Isaiah, to the blood of John the Baptist, to the blood of the Holy and Righteous One, Jesus Christ, to the blood of Stephen, to the the blood of James and Acts, to the blood of John Rogers and the Marian Martyrs, to the blood of Bonhoeffer. It will all be avenged in the end. There will not be one unjust death of God's saints that's going to go unpunished. And so you see that God is not only just in His vengeance, and God is not only just in His judgment, but He is powerful because He's redeeming His people as He's judging the world. He's powerful to save. He's just to judge and powerful to save. And these things go hand in hand. The wicked, the rebellious, the idolatrous, the murderous, they're going to be brought down low. The saints made righteous by the blood of Christ, who persevered for the witness of the kingdom, even to the point of death, they will be exalted. They will be avenged. They will cry out hallelujah as their killers are quieted in final judgment. That's hallelujah number one. The second one is found in verse 3. The multitude is rejoicing that the smoke of Babylon goes up forever. They see her destruction. And they say, praise the Lord. They are giving glory to God as their champion. He has won and the world has been defeated. So number two, praise the Lord for He has overcome the world. Praise the Lord, for He has overcome the world. The juxtaposition of the second hallelujah with the fourth hallelujah that we'll get to in a moment, it's really something. Because in the fourth hallelujah, we've got a wedding. The people of God as a bride being married to their bridegroom, a wedding feast, the bride of Christ on her wedding day. But as she stands at her wedding feast, she looks off to the horizon and she sees the world tried to kill her, smoldering from the fire of God's judgment. It's another Old Testament illusion. This time it is the prophet Isaiah, not Jeremiah. And he was also speaking about what would come of the Babylonian Empire. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Again, what happened in part in the day of Babylon's fall as the Persians moved into power will happen in full when the entire evil network of humanity comes down in God's judgment. The fact that we have the bride seeing the smoke going up from judgment and crying out hallelujah It speaks to a knowledge of the world that we will have in eternal glory. There are some who assume that we'll have no memory of sin, no memory at all of the world that was. And to an extent, it's true that our memory is going to be limited. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And so before the new Jerusalem comes down as a bride adorned for Christ, her husband, the first heaven and the first earth will pass away. And any memory that would cause us pain and that would cause us sorrow is going to go with it. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But clearly, we won't forget everything. Our memories are not going to cause us pain, but our glorified memories will know that an enemy was defeated. We will know that our sin was defeated. Because we will see the one who still bears the scars. For all of eternity, we will know there he is, Christ our champion, who won the day and overcame Babylon the world. 1 John 4.4 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the reality in the here and now. And that will be proven fully and finally in the end. And we will know it. Our memories of the world will not cause us pain. We will have glorified memories, just like we will have glorified bodies, but they will cause us to praise. Let's keep going. The third hallelujah is in verse 4. We see some old friends. We see familiar characters offering up this statement of praise to God. It's not the multitude now. Now we have the heavenly hosts that we saw in Revelation 4. We've got the four living creatures, and we've got the 24 elders. The four living creatures reflect aspects of God's character and God's glory. And the elders are representatives of the full people of God. And just as they are worshipful in that heavenly scene in Revelation 4 and in Revelation 5, here they are worshiping again, falling down before the throne of God, and they are saying, Amen, Hallelujah, which literally means, so be it, praise God. And then in verse 5, just as it happened in chapter 16 and 17, a voice comes from the throne. The same thing will happen in chapter 21. And the voice says, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Which takes us to our third point tonight. Praise the Lord, for He is the Savior of all who fear Him. Praise the Lord, for He is the Savior of all who fear Him. The powerful acts of God that we have seen in this text, both in judging evil and in saving His people, they're not just done for an elite class of believers. They're not done for a special group of Christians. We're not like Jehovah's Witnesses who wrongly believe that a literal 144,000 will get to reign with Jesus in the new heaven, and then a lower class of Jehovah's Witnesses, and then a bunch of people who did good works will live on the new earth. No, that's false teaching, that's heretical teaching that comes from a cult. Instead, what we see in the Scriptures is that God saves and redeems and acts for all of His people, both great and small. That he shares the inheritance of his son with all of his people who are united to him through the son. This is who God reveals himself to be. He is a God that desires to save all types of people. Zechariah verse, uh, chapter 8 verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. Anybody, great or small, from the east to the west, the Lord desires that they would fear him and that they would serve him. And that's very different from the fallen and unjust leaders of the world. When the Titanic sank, the captain, Edward Smith, 
not necessarily a great guy, famously allowed better access to lifeboats to the upper class on the ship, and many that died were people that were in the lower classes, like Leonardo DiCaprio. Just joking. I still think there was room on that door, just saying. But many of the people that died, they were lower class people who did not have access to the boats. There were preachers on the Titanic who were running around telling people, women and children, women and children, but the captain, the guy in charge is saying, the rich people, the upper class. Our God is not this way. See, in the eyes of God, throughout the scriptures, there's really just two types of people. There's proud people who oppose him, and there's contrite people who have confessed their sin and have pleaded the blood of Christ for their depravity. There's humble people and there's haughty people. There are people that are for him, and there are people who are pridefully against him. He dwells in you or the world dwells in you. And praise God that he has seen fit to take those that the world does not count wise or or noteworthy. And he says, I'll save them and I will use them for my glory. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. People that the world count as insignificant will do the most significant thing possible for all of eternity. For there is nothing more significant than serving the Lord God in reverent and worshipful fear. And that is exactly what we will do on the new earth forever without the stain and pollution of sin in our glorified resurrected bodies. And those that will be there doing that are those who by God's grace were not vexed by the sorcery of Babylon. And because we are not vexed by the sorcery of Babylon and we don't give in to the world, we're dismissed by the world. Often, the world will call us idiots. And they think that we are. They think we're fools. They think we're morons. They think, oh man, look at these people. They're still holding on to this archaic idea of religion. They they, they still think that there's some God that created all this, that we're accountable to some man in the sky, They think that we're no better than the Egyptians who were worshiping Ra, the sun god. They think we're no better than uh, the pagans of the past. And they think that our religion will just fade away like the others have. That's what they think. Dismissed by the world we are. We don't worry about that dismissal. We know we're delivered by King Jesus. What can these servants of the Lord do but join in with the creatures and the elders in offering up hallelujahs to their God? And now we come to the fourth and the final hallelujah in the passage tonight. In verse 6, John hears what seems to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And this is one of those places where you can get out seven different books on Revelation, and you will read, you know, four people saying this and three people saying this, and you're like, okay, so what do we do here, right? Ultimately, I think the most plain reading here is to see the great multitude that's offering up this hallelujah in chapter 6 is the same multitude from 19 verse 1, the same multitude that gives up the hallelujah in verse 3. The people of God, the church triumphant, prepared as a bride for her bridegroom. 
Some people think it's not the church. Some people think it's the angel in verse 9. They think that, that uh, because the, the voice here in verse 6, it, it sounds like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. They say this is, this is someone who's a bit more powerful than the people of God, but uh, I, I believe that this is the same multitude. And I think that the angel we see in verse 9 very well could be the angel who's throwing the millstone down at the end of chapter 18. But regardless... What everyone agrees on is we have an incredibly important picture sketched for us of the marriage of the Lamb to His bride. We have the culmination of all of history coming to pass. You see in verse 6 that the hallelujah is first and foremost over the fact that the Lord Almighty has begun to reign. The kingdom has come. You remember in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends to heaven? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still thinking local. They weren't even thinking global. Are, are, are you going to sit on David's throne now? wasn't time yet. But it is time here in Revelation 19. The kingdom has come. The Romans have been tossed out on their ear, but not just the Romans. Any member of Babylon that has stood in opposition to God has been defeated. And in verses 7 and 8, the people of God say, Let us rejoice, exalt, and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It has been granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Number four, praise the Lord, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Praise the Lord for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now, to understand what's going on in this passage, we need to take our ideas about how someone comes to, uh, to, to fall in love here in Western culture, right? Star-crossed lovers. And we need to check it at the door. Because it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're reading here in Revelation 19. The Jewish world that the book of Revelation was written in knew nothing of our system of dating, knew nothing of having an engagement that could be broken off without legal ramifications. They knew nothing of this new and novel Western idea where you go off and you say, oh, she's so pretty, oh, he's so handsome. And you woo one another and you have fights with one another and then if everything works out, you end up getting engaged and then you have an engagement and, and if somebody decides to get out of that engagement, really there might be like, you know, some money that's been spent on a wedding and on rings and stuff like that, but you don't have to really get a judge involved, you just end it. The people who were hearing this letter read in the first century would have thought that was completely foreign. <laughs> they would have thought that that was something that was honestly crazy. We are familiar with the story of Joseph and Mary. And that's where we need to go to understand what Jewish betrothal really is. Because before they were ever married, in the sense that we would consider someone married, they were married in the eyes of the Jewish world. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
Did you catch that? Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and yet Joseph is being referred to as her husband, and if they want to split, there's going to have to be a legal divorce. Obviously, a Jewish betrothal is not like a Western culture engagement. Joseph has already called her husband. To end the betrothal, there must be a legal process. And here's why. When a man and woman would be betrothed to one another, it took place in front of witnesses. And the witnesses would watch the man and the woman accept the terms of the marriage. And a blessing would be spoken over the couple. And from that day on, the couple was seen as husband and wife. But here's the thing. They would not live together right away. In our culture, people think you're nuts if you don't live together before you get married. And Christians, sadly, have fallen into that line of thinking. They have, they have rejected God's revelation of himself in his word and what he has to say about how we should enter into marriages. And they have said, well, we're just going to practically do what the world does. And it's sinful, and often it leads to disastrous marriages because they start in that way. But in this culture, they would be betrothed, seen as husband and wife, and not live together. The bride would go back to her daddy's home. The husband would go to earn the money for the bride price because he had to pay for her. He had to give a dowry to her father. And by the way, she didn't have a whole lot of say in this whole situation. Once he had the money he needed and once he had a home prepared, he would come and he would buy the woman from her father. And then he would put on his best clothes and he and his friends would come sauntering down the lane Maybe he had a bugle in hand to announce themselves and they would whisk her away to the new home and the relatives would all follow them and after their marriage was consummated, they would come out and celebrate the fact that their marriage was consummated and everybody would cheer and then they would have a one to two week long feast. Not one to two hours, not, hey everybody, leave at midnight, throw rice in the air and then go home. No, one to two weeks they would come together and they would have a feast and they would celebrate. It's all very, very different from the way that we do things in the here and now. And with that in mind, it's not hard to make connections to the church's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, is it? We as believers are betrothed to the Lord. He is our bridegroom. As the church, we are his bride. You too, men. Men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the bride of Christ. He paid the bride price for us with his life's blood on the cross. Husbands, love your wives, Paul said, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for us. He died for his people. We are legally bound to him, and one day he will come sauntering down the lane for his bride. And he will return with trumpet sound. And he will let all of creation know it is time for the marriage feast of the Lamb. And in verse 7, the text says that his bride has made herself ready. This bride stands in contrast to the harlot. These two women are being contrasted from one another. Compared and contrasted. The same could be said of the two cities, Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Each of these women come to very different ends. One is faithful to Christ and seeks to lead others to Him. The other is unfaithful and seeks to get others to drink her sexual immorality from her golden cup of abominations. 
One is dressed in fine linen, bright and pure, prepared for her wedding. One is dressed in the clothes of a harlot, prepared for her funeral. One is called blessed by the angel in verse 9. One is called fallen, fallen by an angel in chapter 18. One is the eternal bride. One is the woman at the bottom of the sea who is no more. This bride has made herself ready. Lest we be duped into thinking that we can work and labor our way to the marriage supper table, work and labor our way into the bride's wedding dress, it's got to be taken in conjunction with verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself. We didn't earn our way to the table, church. We come in the wedding dress by the granting grace of God. The fine linen, bright and pure, it's not her own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that shows itself in her works. For no one can be righteous on their own. Nobody can muster up a single work of righteousness before God. Unless His grace would change their very nature down to the root of who they are. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. All are born trapped in their sinful nature. But for the bride of Christ, the old filthy rag she once wore, they've been stripped off, they've been taken away through Christ's atoning death. He wore them for us on the cross. He was judged as if they belonged to Him. She has been giving a sparkling and beautiful white wedding dress. If not for her dress, if not for her clothes, she would not be able to be in the Lord's presence forever. If not for the robes of righteousness, she could not eat from the tree of life. She could not serve him on the new earth. Revelation twenty-two fourteen says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. And now he is sanctifying her with his word. He is preparing her for the big day. Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's why when I do weddings, I always say, the the beautiful white dress that we have here today, I, I don't say that it represents the purity and the beauty of the bride. Listen, I will never forget when my wife walked down the aisle. Remember the doors opening, the white doors at the back of Red Lane Baptist Church? I remember standing there looking down the center aisle, the pews, they're now gone, they don't have the pews anymore, but the pews were still there at the time, red carpet, and John Hash walked Katie Hash down the aisle, her last few moments, with Hash as her last name, and she was beautiful, but let me tell you, she was a sinner. I love her, but she was a sinner. And there was a sinner standing there waiting for her at the altar. And so I like to remind everybody at the wedding, that that beautiful white wedding dress, it reminds us of the righteousness of Christ provided for his church so that she can marry him at the altar. This prepared bride that you hear of before you actually see, just as you heard of the harlot before you actually saw her in chapter 17, It is the result of the saving work of the entire Godhead. Understand that. The Father has given a bride to the Son, His people. And those people will come to the Son and they will never be cast out. Those aren't my words, those are Jesus' words. 
John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Who are these people who will come to the Son? Who are the people who make up the bride of Christ? It's the great multitude. It's the church triumphant. It's those whose names were etched into the book of life with the purposeful ink of God. Revelation 21, verse 26, they will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. So who's going to be there in the new earth? Who's going to be in the new Jerusalem? Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those written in the Lamb's book of life will be in the new Jerusalem. Only those written in the Lamb's book of life are being adorned to come down out of heaven as a bride for her husband. And those names were written down before the foundation of the world, i.e. eternity past. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, talking about the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so the Father before time, gives the son a bride and says, here they are, son. They're going to cost your life. That's the bride price. And the son says, I'll die for her. And I will sanctify her. You say, well, what's the Holy Spirit doing in all this? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When a betrothal took place in the ancient world, there would often be a down payment. There would be a guarantee made to to show the earnest intention of the husband to follow through. We use engagement rings for this purpose in our culture. What Paul's showing us in Ephesians 1 is the Holy Spirit is the down payment for our wedding day. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of what is to come to us in eternal glory. As brides, as as, as the bride of Christ, as sons in Christ, He is the guarantee. And so you can see all three persons of the Trinity have worked to bring this wedding day to pass in Revelation 19. The angel's words in verse 9 stand in contrast to Babylon. She is cursed by God, but the names written in the book of life who have received invitations to the supper, they are blessed. And you can count on that because these are not deceptive words like the words that are offered up by Babylon or the words offered up by the second beast who is a lamb but he speaks like a dragon. And these are the true words of God. In John's response to the whole scene, he's, he, he falls down at this angel's feet and, and, and he worships him. He starts to worship him. The angel says, no, don't do that. That's not what we're doing here. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And in that, the angel has spoken the entire message of Revelation in his correction of John. Has he not? Man, we can sit here and we can talk about dispensationalism. We can talk about classic premillennialism. We can talk about amillennialism. We can talk about postmillennialism. We can do all that, but at the end of the day, it's worship God, reject the dragon, reject the beast, reject the false prophet, reject Babylon. Worship God. 
through his worthy son, Jesus Christ. That's the message of the book of Revelation. Hold on, keep worshiping. Glory's coming. Final words of verse 10 are a little bit confusing, and I don't have much time left. I have no time left, so I'm going to depend on Tom Schreiner, who's a lot smarter than me. Schreiner says, the saying is tantalizingly ambiguous. And the saying that he's talking about, it comes there uh, at the end of verse 10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He says, the saying is tantalizingly ambiguous and has provoked a number of different interpretations. John probably means that spirit-inspired prophecy focuses on the testimony given by and about Jesus Christ. Christians are to worship God and be God-centered, but prophecy also points us to the centrality of Jesus and his majesty and greatness. And I'll just let Shriner's words speak for themselves. The four hallelujahs truly are the tale of two women. One's never going to be seen again. One's in plain view, shining in the brilliance of her righteous, blood-washed garments. One drank the blood of God's saints. One is chosen from the foundation of the world to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. One had her funeral announced by her old lovers who will perish with her. One has her wedding announced by the very word of God which will never pass away. And so we have to ask ourselves as we close up tonight, are you in, are you in bed with the world? Are you living in cohabitation with the world? Are you in the bride of Christ? If the Lord Jesus were to return tomorrow... Would you be filled with horrible sorrow? Or would you be filled with hallelujahs? And we can't just ask these questions and answer them according to what is in our head. We have to really ask according to what is in our heart. For the state of your heart is what informs your hands and your feet in terms of your obedience. If you love the groom, you will live like a betrothed bride. If you do not love the groom, you will not wait for him. Take matters into your own hands. You will seek your reward in the here and now, doubting whether or not he'll come through on his promises, doubting whether or not his judgment is even real. If you love the groom, you will submit to him as your head and as your authority. If you love the world, you will reject the groom and you will take on a lover that you were never designed for, a harlot who will never love you back. Imagine a man coming back from earning the dowry, earning the bride price. And he comes and he pays it to the father. And he gets his boys together and he comes down the lane. And he announces himself with the trumpet. And when he arrives at the bride's home, he finds that she has taken on many lovers. Will he call that woman his own flesh? Will he know her? Or will he depart from her and divorce her and never see her again? Of course, he will not count her unfaithfulness as love. She could say, it is love. I love you. I love you. I love you. He can say, the lovers in your bed say otherwise. Richard Baxter says, remember your ultimate purpose. And when you set yourself to your day's work or approach any activity in the world, let holiness to the Lord be written upon your hearts in all that you do. When the groom returns, he will find holiness written on the heart of his bride. Does that describe you? Are you a man of holiness or are you a man of harlotry? Are you a woman of holiness or a woman of haughtiness? 
If you are concerned that you are the latter, don't despair because what I said at the beginning is true. There's no place we see that he is a redeeming judge more than the cross. The Lord Jesus bids you to come and to humble yourself and confess your sin and receive the gift of redemption in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And I would urge you, do this tonight. Don't wait. Get out of bed with the world. Come to the Lord Jesus. And by his grace, be a part of his bride and you will sit at his wedding feast. We don't know when the groom will return, but you don't want to miss another day of living in his love as the bride who is awaiting her husband. Father God, I thank you for your word and the truth of it. Thank you that you have loved your people for a long time, Lord. Much longer than we can fathom. For you are an eternal God who writes the beginning or the end from the beginning. The whole Godhead, Lord, has worked together for us, for our salvation. And we give you the praise for that. What has the Father done for us in salvation? He has chosen his people. What has the Son done for us in salvation? He has died for them. What has the Spirit done for us in salvation? He has quickened those whom the Father has chosen, and He is the guarantee of our inheritance. Lord, we give you the praise for this. But Father, your Son is not just the propitiation for the Jewish people. He is the propitiation for the world, for people from all nations. And so, God, we know that more are to come. More will sit at that wedding table. More will fit into the wedding dress. And when the last one comes, your Son will return. May He find holiness written on our hearts. And we look forward to serving Him forever. And we look forward to seeing the smoke of Babylon in the distance as we celebrate our salvation with hallelujahs. The Lord Almighty reigns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.